Thanks very much. Oh, to your talk. Thank you. Well, we'll see. We'll see if you <laughs> regret that. Um, and yeah, no, no promises on the Greek letters. I'm pretty sure I've got a few in here, so I apologize for that too. Um, all right. So I'm going to be talking about linking uh, personal medical records and uh, population-level medical data. Um, and I think Larry, uh, just following that general theme as well, I'm going to let him uh, talk about his own stuff, though. Um, I, uh, so I've been spending some time working with medical records and trying to, to see what can be done with them. Um, and I've come to this idea that uh, maybe, maybe you can actually learn a little bit from them and, and provide something useful. So uh, we've, we've, heard, we've heard in the past in this, in this forum about personalized medicine in a lot of different contexts. There's a, sort of an old version of personalized medicine from, I guess, the 60s. I'm not an expert, so I apologize if I'm wrong about things like this, um, which really meant know your patient and know what they can tolerate and, and know about their personal medical history, their family medical history, and use these things to inform your decisions about them. Uh, and then there's sort of a newer version of personalized medicine um, that I've come to think of as personalized veterinary medicine, although my wife tells me that's not a very nice thing to say. Um, but it really involves not needing to speak to the patient at all. You, 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 Measure whatever you want to measure, and that may involve thousands of genes or proteins or whatever else you can think of, um, and you use that to personalize their treatment. So really, you're personalizing the treatment of their disease, um, trying to learn about their disease as much as you can, and, uh, and modifying your treatment based on what you know. Um, so the talk that I'm going to give today is really kind of about something that's in between. We're personalizing things, uh, or trying to. Um, we're going to do this. Um, in a with with computational models, so statistical modeling, um, but we're going to actually use data that involved interacting with the patient, um, which presumably has information in it that doesn't that is not involved in something else like uh, gene expression profiling and that sort of thing. This, by the way, is an example of uh, gene expression profiling that we put together here. Uh, I felt like I had to put a plug in for that. So there it is. Um, it, it's an, it's a it's a gene expression profile that can distinguish uh, sick from healthy Canada, from staff, these sorts of things. All right, so the, this in between, what would, you, what would you actually do with it um, if you could do it? So the idea here is that we're going to support physicians in their, in their decision-making process. And that might involve looking up old medical records and providing the ones that are most relevant. It might involve providing sort of an automated uh, differential diagnosis, these sorts of things. And that's, that's really the context of um, clinical decision support. Um, which is a, it's a huge undertaking, really. Um, and the part that I'm talking about is, is this part right here. Um, and I think I've sized it appropriately for its relevance and importance. Um, the other, you know, it's a tremendous undertaking. The, the, collecting data on patients is not standard in any way. Um, it may be standard within a, within a hospital system or, or a health system, but across the country it's certainly not. Um, Entering all this tremendous amounts of data is a challenge. Managing it is um, mind-boggling, really. I mean, you know, these, these patient records are being updated constantly from lots of different places. Um, the, the amount of data that's being collected is growing quickly, and the amount that's already there is just, I mean, it's really beyond comprehension. Yeah. You know, as, as people start going to these uh, electronic data records, uh, mm -hmm. medical records, and these companies that provide them, 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, if there are, if there is a, if 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 there are a number of uh, health systems that are using the same company to manage their medical records, then presumably that company has some level of standardization in order to do what they do uh, relatively cheaply. Now, my understanding is there's still some um, customizations that people are generally willing to make for, uh, say, a Duke health system, um, but but it certainly would help. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then, then so we get the data and we do some sort of cute stuff that I'll talk to you about in a few minutes. And then how do you present that to physicians? What do you do um, to, what do you give them that's not interfering in what they want to do? It should be something that, that allows them to use their vast, their, their, their knowledge of, of what, of the patient they're seeing and the diseases um, to inform their decisions, not something that says, you know, we think it's this or that. Um, and then... If we can do all that, it would be nice to use outcome data to improve the models. So maybe we can follow these patients through uh, through time and and keep track of what happened to them and and decide based on that how we could bet have done a better job in providing care or providing decision support for uh, for for patients. So that's that's the overall theme. And on the right there, you see a, a sort of a stylized diagram of kind of how this would be accomplished. You, you see here. Um, clinical data, health data, that, medical records, uh, uh, past medical history, family history, these sorts of things. Here you see uh, veterinary, personalized veterinary medicine data, um, you know, biomarkers, labs, these sorts of things. And over here you have outcomes, and these are feeding together. The data here is being used to, to build predictive models and, and offer support. Uh, the data over here is being used to improve those predictive models and feedback to the into the system. Um, <coughs> excuse me. All right, so let me give you an example of what what I'm talking about. And I apologize if this goes poorly, but we'll see how it goes. All right. Forty-eight-year-old with past medical history of hypertension who presents with headache and chills. That's as loud as it gets. I apologize. Um, okay, so you know th this is a stylized example, of course, but um, maybe it's something we could actually accomplish based on the types of approaches that I'm going to describe in a, in a few minutes. And if you let me be a little bit sort of science fictional now, uh, let's try again here. Siri, I have a headache and chills. All right, let's see here. All right. Um, so this is kind of the, the, the idea here. Um, where, where can we go? Maybe that's you know, 50 years away. Um, but it's something we can actually start to think about doing with these medical records and what's there and, and potentially uh, genomic tests and these sorts of things. All right, so well, how am I going to do all this stuff? Uh, let me describe first the data that I'm working with. Um, we have medical records from the Duke ED, 50,000 of them from the first three quarters of uh, 2009. 
the amount of data just here is beyond what I can deal with or, or uh, what we can deal with at the time, so we've uh, subsetted it, but I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. Um, and we have uh, a chief complaint, have a zip code from where these folks were, came from. We have um, uh, the physician's history. Um, we actually have the history in physical, but I'm only using the, we're only using the history part. All right, so I've subsetted this. We're only use, we're using uh, 6,100 of these 50,000 records. Um, these are the moderately common chief complaints. So we've filtered out based on chief complaint, picking a, a subset that are um, moderately common and, and in order. So like the 20th through the 30th or something like that. Most common chief complaints. All right, and some of these are distinct. Uh, we have, for example, a sickle cell crisis in there, which is fairly clear. And some of them are somewhat convoluted with each other. With each other. For example, we have uh, shortness of breath, asthma, and allergies. And these are all somehow hard to distinguish, potentially. All right. So what do we do? Here's my Greek letters for the day. Um, I'll stop after this. So uh, here's, the, here's the general idea. We're, we've, got, uh, we've got all these patients. We want to put them in groups. We want to put them together in groups that um, represent similar diseases. So um, in those groups, I'm representing by this letter ZI here. That's the group for patient I. All right, you can think of it as clustering, really. Um, we, ha we have the history and physical to work with. Like I said, just using the history. We have the words in that history. OK, so those are WIJ. WI is, uh, WIJ is the, is the jth word in the ith patient's history. Okay? And then we have uh, diagnoses for these patients, too. So we want to actually, uh, we want some meaning to come from, from these clustering. And so we're going to use the diagnosis at least for a training set. And then we can test and see how well we did with those diagnoses in a validation set later on. Um, so if we're going to use the diagnosis, that's DIJ. That's the, uh, the diagnosis J for the IF patient. And that J is, needs to be there because sometimes there's multiple diagnoses. So it's a, it's, that can be a challenge. All right, this, the, 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 what is typical, and this is called, um, well, it's a version of uh, LDA, latent Dirichlet allocation. Um, and the other parts of this are, are, are drawn straight from that. So ZI is multinomial. You have some number of categories, and you're going to draw a category for each patient. Uh, WIJ is multinomial, a certain number of words. In our case, we've, we've filtered out the words, and I'll talk about them in a sec. So you say 400, 500 words, and you're going to draw a word, word J, from uh, one of these words, one of this collection of dictionary elements. And we have diagnoses, the same sort of thing. And, and there are priors for the parameters in these models, and we can talk about that if you like, but I'm going I'm to leave it at that for now. OK, so what if we can accomplish this? We're going to put these patients in groups. Um, and now we're going to take the groups, and we're going to try and do something useful with them. So if, if you look at a group, you can, you can ask, all right, well, what are, the difference, what are the diagnoses in that group? Or what are the treatments for the people who went in that group? If we have long-term outcome data, we can ask, What's the prognosis for these folks? What's the prognosis for people who were given this treatment versus that treatment? All these things you can do, um, and, uh, and, and with, with relatively straightforward approaches to, to, uh, to asking those questions. So I've got some examples here. For example, at this top right, you have, uh, say, a, a gastric reflux group. Hopefully, very few of those have heart disease or chest wall pain. You've been able to distinguish those two. Another one down here on the bottom right, say, you have a viral flu. And uh, with our, maybe with some genomic tests, you can tell the difference between virus and bacteria, so you can downgrade the, the importance of those other things. All right. 
Okay. <clears throat> so here's here's what's happening behind the scenes then. If you if you were, are familiar with the model that I described, you'll you'll recognize I didn't have any ordering in there at all. So there wasn't anything in there that said um, that hand pain is different from pain hand. Right? Those are those are treated the exact same by the model. Um, so what's really happening is you've got a history and physical. I'm showing you one here, or sorry, a history. I'm showing you one here, um, and we're using only moderately common words. So very common words like the and a and that kind of stuff we've filtered out. Very rare words we've also filtered out. That may or may not be a good idea. Some of them presumably are very informative, but uh, for the time being, we're, we're not using them. Um, and so we've got 450 or so words, uh, and I'm giving an example of what happens to the medical record uh, after this filtering. So here you have the raw data. Over here you have what's left after the filtering. So the idea then is to take that list of words here uh, and use them to, uh, for, so for example, give a differential diagnosis for this patient. Now that may be, that, that perhaps is a little challenging. Maybe there's better things that we could do, but that's where it stands right now. This is the actual differential diagnosis for this patient. Uh, so we'd like to reconstitute something like that from this list of words by grouping people together who have similar lists of words in their histories. Okay. Yeah. Can you, you know, create some of fever, right? So it's no fever. That's, you know, if, if the... No. It's, it's in theory. All right, so... Otherwise, fever will show up in your list of words. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, fever is in, in, typically in the list of words. Um, you notice you don't have trauma in your list, but you have trauma in your list. Yeah, it's just one trauma, and it didn't show up in the list. Yeah, yeah. So say a way you can filter this out. Certainly. Well, all right, so so all right. So, um, let me, uh, so the dictionary. It's kind of the question about what's the dictionary. There isn't anything in, in the rules that says that a dictionary element has to be a single word. So you can certainly include phrases in there if they're important. Um, the problem with that, from my perspective, is I don't know what phrases are important, and uh, I don't really want to dig through and try and figure it out. I want the computer to do all that work. Now, of course, you can do better if you do that, right? And there are whole companies, really, that, 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 whose focus is doing things like that, deciding, all right, what are important medical terms? And they may be phrases and not individual words. And when it comes down to it, I'll probably just borrow from, from those guys. Um, so, so a dictionary element can be multiple words. It could be no fever would be one element, and fever would be the other, and you could distinguish between the two and, and put it in. That's certainly possible. The easy thing about the way that I'm doing it is there are spaces, right? So just, yeah, I know exactly where to start and stop. And it's, so it can be improved. Um, all right. So, so we use this model. We, 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 take, we t subset the data. We've got, we take, say, 1,800 records, and we fit the model, and, uh, and we want to now put these people in groups, now we've got these guys that we held out, and, we, and to fit the model, we are using the diagnosis. Now we've got the holdouts, and we want to put them in their groups and see what happens, see if they end up where they belong. Um, first, let me give you an example. I skipped ahead. So first, let me give you an example of what, what's the output. Right, so uh, here's, here's one group. And if you look at the, at the group, um, you see these are the words from the history and their relative frequencies. These are the words from the differential diagnosis and their relative frequencies. So I would argue that this is doing a fairly good job of grouping people that belong together, possibly with some mistakes. Uh, where's my mistake in here? 
Uh, probably down here, huh? Alter and and this paranychia. These guys, these guys have swollen fingers. And not surprisingly, the word swelling or swollen is associated with allergies. And so it, you know, there's, a, there's a mistake there. Um, altered mental status, I'm not sure what went on there. Uh, but if you look, there's no, there's, no, um, there's no requirement that a physician use the word allergic the words allergic reaction to describe their diagnosis for their patient. They can use whatever they want. They're, uh, they're very intelligent. And sometimes they have a very clear reason for using a different term um, for, uh, for their allergy than just allergic reaction because it's important potentially. Um, so we want to be able to, nonetheless, we want to be able to put these guys together in an automated way. So I haven't gone through and done any filtering or any, any sort of uh, pre-assignment of terms that mean the same thing. This is all a function of just what came out of the model. All right, these guys look similar and, and I think they're similar. These are the words that tend to look like allergies in, the, in somebody's history. All right, now, so here's to make, sort of make the point. Let's try again here. Swelling, associated, relief, taken, itching, Benadryl. All right, and then uh, let's see here. All right, so that, that would be the idea. Um, certainly, Siri can be wrong. Uh, mostly wrong, actually, when I try to use it. Um, but OK, so here, here's what I'm not, now let me show you what I'm showing here on this graph. This would be more of what you would show potentially a physician who's, uh, who's using this for clinical decision support, right? So Siri. Uh, has seen the, the history, and she's going to say, all right, I think here's my differential diagnosis. And that's what you're seeing here from bottom to top. Right, so um, the training data, remember the blue, that used the diagnoses to do the clustering. So we certain, shouldn't be impressed if the, diagno if the differential diagnosis looks good from those guys. But the test data did not. Right? The test data is only using the history to, to produce a diagnosis, a differential diagnosis. Uh, and, and this is what you get. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about the terms on the side here in just a second. But, um, but essentially, what, what, what comes out is there's a 60% probability that this person has an allergic reaction, dyspnea, angioedema, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with the probabilities going down. And because the, um, the red and the blue lines are similar in length, we think that the differential diagnosis is, is working, right? It's not correct. The, the answer, the, the best answer, is not going to be the right answer. But the answer is probably in the list somewhere. And the most likely one is the, the top one. And the second most likely one is the second one, et cetera, et cetera. All right, so potentially a physician would see, well, here's a list of things. Probably the physicians don't need it. But as we move on and on, uh, move, as, as we move into um, uh, more and more uh, cost-conscious medicine, um, we're going to see uh, PAs. We're going to have um, uh, we're going to have telemedicine. Uh, th these things are coming down the pipe, and potentially the physician who's who's now managing people rather than seeing patients full time, uh, potentially will want to see a, a second opinion. So they'll have their PA come and talk to them. They'll have Siri come and talk to them, and uh, and and they'll they'll get these two sort of uh, hopefully complementary sources of information. All right.
clinical decision support, so maybe this is sitting in the bottom corner of the screen somewhere. All right, and let me show you some examples of what we can do with this. So we have, we have grouped these patients now. We have collections of patients that look the same. Um, it doesn't, they're, uh, it, it, it doesn't, so we have, we've grouped them based on their histories and their, um, their diagnoses, and we'd like to know uh, what, can we, what can we say about these groups of patients. So for example, the allergy group of patients, um, maybe, they, maybe, they're a, maybe they're a disease is caused by some drug, uh, or maybe uh, so. Potentially, we can we can we can pick that out with this sort of data. So what I'm doing, what I'm showing you here, is um, the relative association between the the patients who have allergies and drug and drug usage. Okay, and and there's p-values and hypothesis tests and such behind this data, but essentially, the brighter red, the more associated a particular drug is with that topic. So in this case, the topic is allergic reaction. Um, and go ahead if you want a question. So the question is, so the medical history that you're making this model from is actually written by a physician, right? Yes. But you're going to try to elicit someone who's not a physician to say the words that are. Yes. Yes. So certainly there, there, that, and that's a that's a very important point. You, you know, the person who is taking a history has to be good for this to be any use at all. But I was even thinking from the patient standpoint who are. Absolutely, yeah. So, so um, you know, this is part of the reason why what I did before was sort of science fiction. You know, there isn't any reason to think that that I would say the right terms to. So, presumably, you would need data from patients doing this to train a model that could actually respond to patients, rather than to train a model that can offer decision support. But you're absolutely right about that. Okay, so uh, so so all right. So here's some drugs that are associated with. Uh, the allergic reaction group uh, with a high level of statistical significance. And you can see many of them are, are not at all surprising. Benadryl, of course, is the first thing you take when you have hives, right? So it's, it's no surprise that someone would come in with hives and on Benadryl. Um, vitamin E, it's fairly uh, known. I guess people use that for allergies. Hyd hydroxyzine, same thing. Um, and these other drugs are kind of well known. They are known to cause um, uh, side effects, hives as a side effect. So Celebrex and Estradiol both are known to cause, potentially cause, uh, potentially be associated with, with allergic reaction. And of course pain, if you have allergies, might take some Advil. Alright, I have a few more of these I'll show you and then I'm going to let Larry uh, take over. Um, <clears throat> so the eye pain topic. So we, one of these topics is mostly eye pain. Um, and again, you know, we're picking out things that are obvious and also some things that are potentially interesting. Now, this is intended to be, this is not a proof, it's a sort of a hypothesis generation machine, really. Um, but Cosopt, uh, Sotolol, these are for glaucoma. No surprises when I have eye pain if they have glaucoma and they're taking these drugs. Uh, prednisolone and erythromycin. These are eye drops, one for, anti, one is an anti-inflammatory, another is an antibiotic. And then Zyprexa. And Zyprexa is a, uh, is a schizophrenia drug, but it's actually known to cause uh, eye pain as a, as a sort of a side effect. So we're picking out a potential side effect of Zyprexa from looking at our medical records data and, and asking for associations. 
All right, another one, sickle cell. This one I think was kind of cool. So, <clears throat> so we have uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of drugs that are associated with sickle cell disease. No surprise that there are some serious pain medications in here. These people really suffer from severe pain. Um, there are a couple of antidepressants in here. Folic acid is repeated over and over again. It's kind of another nice feature is, you know, again, we don't, we don't need to say folic acid is the same as vitamin B before we fit the model. It, it's putting them together and saying, yeah, okay, these guys are looking the same. Um, that's actually outside the model, but it certainly fits. It's the same sort of pattern. Um, but then there's this one other one. Um, where is it? Cathodex, right here. And I kind of flipped through these and proofed by Google search, looking them up, seeing which ones look obvious. And this Cathodex, when I looked it up, so I put in Cathodex and sickle cell, the first two pages are links to Canadian uh, drug companies where you can order it without a prescription and have it shipped over the border, um, which is... You know, that's odd, right? So my first thought was, all right, well, people are, maybe they're self-medicating for some reason with this Casadex, and, and maybe there's something to it. So, all right, so I dig in a little for like page eight or something like that. I find that, um, that this, this has been shown in 2003, there were two patients who were put with sickle cell disease and priapism who were put on Casadex, and it seemed to help. So it turns out that um, uh, all 13 of the patients who are on Casadex in this category are men. So I think what I've found is some off-label use of the drug Casadex. Probably it's being prescribed, maybe by urologists or something like that. But, um, but again, you know, it's kind of cool, really, that you can find this sort of thing uh, by, by linking personal records and, and sort of public health data, which is what's going on with uh, what's going on with sickle cell patients. So what are, what are they doing? All right. But, but so the, uh, one of the other implications of this is that you're finding you don't have cause and effect, right? It's just an association. These are all pure associations. So, no, so yeah. You, so you, you can rationalize like you just did about why some associations exist, but but it also could be that um, some drugs that you didn't know about are precipitating something like sickle cell crisis. Well, that would be a very interesting hypothesis and certainly a possibility. And I, you know, I didn't, I, I'm not. This is a hypothesis so generating machine. You found those right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So one of the reasons that a drug would show up here on this list is because it's causing the disease. Yes, absolutely. That's certainly right. Um, so uh, yeah, I think of this as a hypothesis generating machine. Here it is. People who know better should look at it and and decide what's important, what's interesting, what's not interesting, that kind of stuff. And what should be followed up on? Potentially, some are side effects. The other the other side of this is, you know, if something doesn't show up here, it, how bad, how common can the side effect be? Not very. So, you know, potentially it can actually help drugs who have kind of a bad rap because there's some side effect that just doesn't really happen very much, at least in our population that we're seeing. Um, all right, so we have a couple of other ways. Well, another way, anyway, to group, uh, group people. Um, one is by location. So we have the zip codes of these folks, and we can plot them out and see where they all come from. And we can actually do the exact same test to see if there's an association between a topic, for example, laceration face. And I'll tell you what, lacer that's not just laceration face. It's really just laceration. The first word on the list is laceration face. And that's what I'm showing you here. But the second word is laceration leg. And the third word is laceration you know, arm, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, 227708 is Duke. Um, so that's Duke, you know, this is probably the students, uh, and it turns out they have a disproportionate number of lacerations for which they show up in the ER. 
<laughs> for completely unknown reasons. <laughs> and is that every Saturday? Yeah, you know, I, I, it's probably possible to track that down, but I can't. I, I, haven't, I haven't done that. That's a good question. All right, and here's, a, here's the last one, and I'm going to turn it over. Um, sickle cell crisis patients. So the, the strongest association with location and any of the groups is with sickle cell, the sickle cell crisis group. Uh, and you can see that there are a few zip codes here that are very strongly associated with sickle cell crisis. And that, that one, that first one, is 50, almost 50 miles away from Duke. Uh, and of the visits, I say patients here, it's really visits. Of the visits, uh, 39 visits from that zip code, 30 to the Duke ED in the first three quarters of 2009, 36 of them were people with sickle cell crisis. Now, I, it's, it would potentially be possible to figure out whether this is one guy coming in 36 times, uh, but I, the data I'm working with, I didn't have that easy access, but it's something you could check. Um, so anyway, very interesting. And, and potentially now from a, from, a, from a hospital administration standpoint, maybe you want to ask the question, is there some place we need to put a new, a new clinic? Ah, I'm supposed to, was, my wife told me to delete the word pain here. I apologize for that. Uh, a new clinic um, <clears throat> that, to serve a, an underserved population. So where, you know, potentially where would you put that? The, the, I'm listing A through G, H, A through H, the first in, in order, from left to right in, in that previous heat map. Um, and what you're seeing then is the locations of those zip codes that are very strongly associated with, with sickle cell crisis. And you know, maybe a, a clinic up, up here would be a reasonable thing to do. Um, that's you know, a hypothesis. Again, there's a lot of decisions that would go into making, there's a lot of information that needs to go into making the decision to build a clinic, right? But this is just one piece that could potentially be valuable. All right, so that's it, really. Um, I intended to have one more sound on here, which was a buzzer to end me. Yeah. All right, uh, so we have you know, lots of applications that can be thought of, um, lots of things that can be incorporated, age, gender. You know, gender, for example, if, you go, if I were to show you, you, you see um, this second topic, you know, that's almost entirely women. There are seven men in that topic, which probably they shouldn't be there, right? So if I use gender, <laughs> so if I use gender, maybe I can actually clean that up a little bit. So that's, that's, that's probably good. Uh, we can, you know, do some other stuff here. Um, we, another last little point I'll make is that maybe we want to actually accommodate the structure in the text. Maybe we don't want to just take the words and ignore the order in which they appear, but actually use them in a sentence, for example. All right, so we have some collaborators. I'll list. Larry's here. Uh, Jeff uh, wouldn't have been possible without. Um, Ricardo's here. He's a, a postdoc working with me. Uh, Jared is a former student. He's moved on, but he started this work. Uh, Eric Wang is a student working with Larry. Howard Shang. Uh, made getting the data possible. And then George Gilpin, Gilpin um, he, I've talked to him briefly. He studies structure in, well, rhetoric, but uh, potentially he's have some, he has some interest in studying the structure in the medical records. So maybe we'll be able to keep that going. Uh, that's it. So let me pass the, pass the buck. And, uh, and do you want to just plug in? Probably that's the easiest, huh? I mean, um there you go. I'm not even going to stand up because my presentation doesn't deserve such. No, come on. <laughs> I didn't do as good a job as Joe. Did. No, come on. Um, so, uh, let's see if that works. Okay, good. 
Okay, so, um, so you know, Joe, Joe is a statistician, and uh, I guess, um, I guess I am too to some extent. And um, I, I live in electrical engineering department, but uh, effectively I uh, do statistics. For me. Oh. <laughs> so, so we can all record your voice. Okay. So um, <laughs> you don't need this. <laughs> okay. So um, so so um, so you know we're, we're tr the idea here is to try to look at interesting sources of uh, uh, of uh, data that um, might be of uh, interest um, to clinicians. So so Joe's you know is obviously very clear. Um, but there's increasingly with the web and Twitter and Google. Um, there are other sources of information that um, that could be of interest to clinicians just to know what's going on and, and to know um, what people are thinking about and searching about, et cetera. So, um, so I, I think most of you are you, you're familiar with Google flu trends, right? And um, this is so maybe not everybody. So Google, um, what they do is they record the number of searches every week on a set of terms that have been deemed to be uh, indicative of uh, interest in flu. And um, I assume that they work with clinicians to find those terms. And um, it, that, that, um, that uh, um, Google Flu Trends has proven to be a very, very useful um, way to track flu, to track the um, evolution, uh, space-time um, of flu. And so, um, so we, what we're doing is we're, we're developing um, models under um, the, the, the DARPA PhD program, the, the Jeff's program, Predicting Health and Disease program. Um, and we're um, trying to use um, auxiliary sources of information. So if you're a clinician and, and somebody um, is presenting to you with symptoms that perhaps are borderline flu, not, not a clear case, but um, if you knew that there were a lot of lot of Google activity on on, on, on flu, that might sway you to, to push you towards a, a, a particular diagnosis. So um, so what we we just kind of view this as an interesting data source. So um, we we don't um, claim that um, anything other than this is an interesting data source. Um, so, so Joe is is showing um, results on analysis of data from the Duke ED. Um, so if you, if you extrapolate, we have EDs all across the country, and um, so we can, we can go beyond flu. We can just look at activities across, across the country and across the world. And, and the flu data, I'm showing it for the United States, but we have this for the entire world. So um, what I wanted to just very briefly, you can tell I didn't even put together a formal presentation, um, just briefly tell you um, what we're doing. Um, the framework is uh, is very general. Um, we, we're using flu data, well, this Google flu data, because it happens to be convenient. But we, you know, there's Twitter data. There's all kinds of data that we could um, make use of. So um, what what we um, have here, uh, Google um, records these um, these uh, searches at 121 cities across the United States. Um, and, and basically, it's just a count. It's a very simple data, just count, number of searches. Um, and uh, this 156-week um, period, we have it um, for, for um, four or five years, um, as long as Google has been doing this. Um, and it, it has, I mean, th there have been articles written about this, that it, it actually, in some respects, is more effective than 
almost any other method of tracking flu. At least that's what I read. Um, um, and, and so it is actually useful data. It's not just kind of fun, although it is fun. Um, so um, these dates here um, were not selected um, arbitrarily. Um, these dates, so most of you, are, I'm sure, are aware of the fact that working through the Blackboard system in, in, in Duke, we're recording uh, symptoms of, uh, of the Duke student body, um, at least those who have volunteered to help us, um, the, the so-called um, flu crew um, program. And um, so the, these weeks actually correspond to when we had data on the flu crew. And so um, our goal here is to try to, to see if we can make um, connections between the flus, that, that, well, the activity that we see among the Duke population and then we, what we see um, across the United States. So now, arguably, I don't need to analyze the entire United States to know what's happening in Durham, North Carolina. And in fact, Google gives you searches on, on, on Google, I mean, on uh, Durham. So really, I, I don't need to do all this stuff. But we, we do this because it's just interesting. Um, so um, so, so what, what we do is, um, I'm going to show you just a few Greek equations. Um, so uh, I assume there may be some people who, who want to look at this. Um, so <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so um, but I'll you know, um, just give you the idea. Um, so um, we're looking at data that's counts. So this is kind of an interesting data. It's just counts. And um, so uh, it turns out that if you, if you look up in a textbook of, uh, of statistics, how do you model counts? This is Poisson. Uh, Poisson distribution is just a, a number of counts. And then what we do is we build um, a factor model, or, or you know, basically a factor model. So many of you are aware of the factor model that, Dave, that Mike West and, and Joe Lucas, and it's kind of the standard model that's used at Duke. Um, to do genomic analysis. Um, factor modeling is, uh, is not unique to gene analysis. It's, in fact, used in many, many parts of science and the social sciences. And so what we, we do, um, so uh, some of you may want to hear this, about this, I assume. Um, we, we build a factor model, which is, which is kind of a product of two terms. Uh, one term um, models um, what is happening spatially and the other models what is happening, happening um, temporally. So it's a space-time model. So, um, so what, what these <coughs> figures are, are showing are four dominant factors of flu activity across the United States uh, based, upon Google, um, based upon Google. Okay, so, so it's not exactly, I mean, the state in the obvious, it's not exactly, it doesn't exactly mean that there's flu. It means that there's interest in flu, um, which are not the same thing. But presumably, um, th there's a strong connection. So, so what th the way to read this is is that we have a dot on every one of those 121 cities. The um, radius of the dot indicates how prevalent or important that um, factor that that city is to that factor. And so. Um, uh, for those of you who are familiar with factor analysis on gene analysis, so you know in the gene analysis that you have a set of factors, which a set of genes which dominate a factor. Here we have a set of cities that dominate a factor. Same basic idea. So you, you can kind of think of those 121 cities as 101 gene, 121 genes, and then the, the radius corresponds to the strength with which those uh, uh, are manifested in factor one, factor eight. Um, factor nine and factor seven. Okay, so um, so I'll let you just kind of look at that. So th this is you know obviously kind of a south 
east type um, flu uh, activity. That's what that factor represents. This is well, whatever it is, and, and here kind of the eastern half of the United States, dominant, you know, primarily. And then um, what um, you see here is so this is the spatial part of the model, and now this is the temporal part of the model. Um, and, and so um, from July 2609 to, um, uh, I guess, March of, uh, of 2010, um, what you're looking at is the strength with which that factor is manifested um, based upon Google searches across the United States over that time period. So, you know, you... Yes? So when you say a factor, do you mean specific text search or like a variable so everybody you know searching on cough no so so yeah so um, uh, um, so Google for better or worse they, they lump they have a set of words or, or phrases that they attribute to, to to flu and they just count them so so um, they don't um, break it down uh, although we can break it down but 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 um, they they select I'm sure working with clinicians a set of words and phrases that they deem to be so it's not so the factor to answer your question um, the factor is a 121 dimensional vector which represents the the strength or degree to which each of the 121 cities are manifested um, are manifested. And, and so, so what that means is, is that if this factor were to be dominant, for example, that means that um, the, the activity with respect to flu is in the southeast United States. And then what happens is, is that um, just like in factor modeling, um, it's going to be a linear combination of these four factors. What, what is happening across the United States at any given time is a linear combination of these four factors. Is that clear? So, so all factors use the same words. So, um, so the. Um, uh, that's right. That's right. So. That's right. That's right. We learn the factors. Yeah, we learn the factors, but but we do that in gene factor analysis too. We're, we're given the gene data, and we learn the factors, and this is exactly the same thing. So the way to think about it is you have a 121-dimensional vector, which is just counts, and then and for the 121 cities, every week we get a new 121-dimensional vector, and then we're representing each of those 121-dimensional vectors as a linear combination of factors, which are inferred. And each one of those factors is itself a 121-dimensional vector, which we are then relating to geography, right? So, um, so, what, so then what, what you're, you're seeing here is the strength with which that factor, and this factor here, are manifested as a function of time over um, basically one year period, okay? And um, so, I mean, I, I guess this is entirely expected. Right, this this um, this signature, right? But um, so the Google flu trend is, you know, the, um, there's a lot of well, I 
Chris Woods is very interested in this for a proposal that they're putting together, right? So we're, we're going to, this is the, not necessarily Google flu data, but data that you might have across the United States, including data that, like Jeff, I mean, that, um, that, that Joe just showed. You had ED, you know, their EDs can presumably talk to each other, share information, maybe not, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, if, if, um, if there is some, I, I know, I know for you know for a fact that the uh, that the, you know the uh, Department of Defense and Homeland Security care a lot about this because if if you're if you're a clinician in the ED and you see something that's kind of strange, but it's a close call. It's just below, say, the noise level. Looks doesn't look quite right, and it maybe looks like some virus that would be a very bad virus. Um, if you're a single clinician and you got one data point, it's kind of difficult. You, you probably, everything would say it's not that. But if, if you're seeing that across the United States or across a region, you know, nearby regions of the United States, then you would, you would think that you would push it, that, that you, it would alert you. And um, so this, this, this Google flu data is just a surrogate for us to, to study development of these types of models, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. It, it, in fact, represents assuming that we accept the Google searches for, as surrogates for activity, because it really could be that more people down here watch CNN than than over here. You know what I'm saying? So, oh, exactly, exactly. And so you notice um, this part of the United States uh, flyover territory is um, is is underrepresented. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. You you definitely can and and should and should absolutely. So um, a, a certain number of hits in New York City is quite different than the number of hits in Nebraska, right? So, um, any case, so um, does, does Google um, allow you to put in worries? Ask, yeah. Yes. Yes. So um, so that would be kind of you know we're not I'm not a clinician so uh, I don't know what the right words are but if if you were to tell me words that you were interested in including the types of words that Joe was finding, then we absolutely could do that. Number of hits on those words or phrases as a, a function of space and time. And, um, and that would actually be really interesting. So if, if any of you are interested in that and could help us with those words, that would be a lot of fun for us because uh, you absolutely can do that. You can, you can search Google, um, basically produce counts of words at locations um, going back uh, as long as Google, you know. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's something in Google called um, Google Analytics or something like that, and um, yeah, you can put in any word you want, and 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 you can watch it over time. So uh, um, so in any case, um, the, this is kind of an interesting data set, I, I think. Um, but more importantly, it's an, an inter interesting um, framework by which um, we can share information across the United States and also across the world. Um, to help make inferences about what is happening at, at any given um, location. Um, and, and so um, we're actually going to use this and are using it in the context of uh, the Duke uh, student data, right? So um, if you know that there's a certain activity, of a, you know, uh, as I said, a certain activity, that would influence how you would uh, interact with, with somebody who's presenting with particular symptoms to you. So. Anyway, so that's all I got. Um, uh, how much spatial resolution does, does Google have? They know the IP addresses. 
Yeah, they they have uh, um, they have I I, I um, they they know the IP addresses and um, uh, so they have very high spatial res resolution. So the 121 cities that they pick, though they pick them, it's probably based upon population that type of thing. But um, uh, but you um, I have I'd have to go look at it carefully. But uh, you know. Durham, North Carolina is not the biggest city in the world, and, and, and we're in there. So um, I think you can pick just about any place you want. So um, so it would be really interesting if any of you guys were interested in this, uh, if you had a list of words and you wanted to kind of study those words um, across space and time and try to understand that, that would be we would definitely be um, very happy to work with you on that. Okay. Do you know if any, uh, anybody is um, actually using this data um, like, uh, to alert regions that there's an, there's a, an impending um, you know, sort of health, health problem? Like if you were, you didn't have this historically, but you were monitoring this in real time. Yeah. And you saw something that was going up like this in your area. Mm -hmm. um, potentially that would be... You know, very informative mm -hmm. for the reasons you said it's it's about the signal to noise issue about right 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 your clinic or whatever but um i'm not now i'm not maybe you probably don't know the answer to this question but i don't know but or is anybody like so. amy do you know this whether i think there have been some studies that have actually used the google blue trend data and tried to uh, use it as a prediction of really? mm -hmm. basically google has been able to predict so what I've, I've read, uh, like <coughs> in places like the Wall Street Journal, et cetera, that all indications are that this works at least as good as anything they got. And, and actually, I, I, I'm, I'm careful to say better, but I believe they actually said it was better. That, um, uh, so it's, it's a very effective tool. Because if you, if you think about it, what you basically are doing is you're, you're using the population as sensors. You know, they're just sensors, and, and people, everybody, most people, a lot of people can search these days, even on your iPhone now. And um, so you basically have all kinds of eyes, you know, looking around. And uh, um, so, um, uh, so you know, for the flu, you know, you got, you know when, you know when this is going to happen. There's, there's, there's no surprise here. Is this the H1 one? Is that why August? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a, H1. Somebody's thinking, okay, i got to learn about it. Because it seems like it's not following the traditional path of a flu season. That's right. That's right. So um, this is a this is the H1N1 period. So um, just happened to, that happened to be when we were collecting uh, from the students. But um, uh, um, is anyone, as far as you know, trying to do this with Twitter or Facebook or that? I mean, I would actually think that that might be even better, possibly in terms of. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would think people might search because they're worried about something, and people might post certain things because it's actually happening to them. Or yeah, yeah, you, yeah. I mean, um, as you may know, there's an entire cottage industry <laughs> that has come up uh, around Twitter, cottage industries uh, on an analysis of Twitter data, right? And uh, um, we, and in fact, there it's it's actually more interesting because um, there it's not just counts; it's 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 words. And, and then exactly what Joe was talking about, place. So the, what Joe was talking about is something, I think you used the word topic modeling. 
And um, uh, topic modeling is, is kind of a fancy way of saying factor analysis in, in, uh, for data. Because um, basically there you're counting words, not counting uh, a word. You're, or you're not counting. It's, it's a count of each of the individual words, right? And um, uh, so, yeah, definitely. I mean, so, and, and you can get Twitter data, too. Um, but the problem with Twitter data is um, that, you know, you, you got all kinds of, first of all, mis misspellings, smiley faces, and all, all this. It's kind of almost nonsensical data to some extent. It's, it's, not, it's not trivial to deal with. You got to do a lot of processing just to get it to a form that you can, you got to do all the misspelling. You got to find all the, the, this, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, th, x, you know, the, all those types of things that people do. It's there's just a lot of effort. So we, we're trying to focus on the statistics. So we haven't done that. <coughs> Yeah, definitely. So, you know, um, kind of, uh, you know, maybe one of the messages, if, if I could speak for Joe, but certainly for myself, is that, um, you know, we have all this data and, uh, and we have Google and we can put, we can do the things you're talking about. Um, and we have tools, we have statistical tools. It'd be great to have questions, like your question, you know, like, like, like what, 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 what could help you? What, what would be the question that would be useful? Um, so, um, uh, in some sense, I think we're here advertising uh, our services to anybody who uh, <laughs> would uh, be interested. You know, the, um, there are a lot of prizes these days uh, of that sort, and and um, and and um, the uh, I think it's a good idea because um, but we shouldn't do it to win um, because we're not going to win. Um, I mean, we may win, but we're not going to win um, because because um, we have other things to do, right? And uh, so, like for example, the Netflix prize, uh, Bell Labs took two or three of their guys and they said, "Go win the prize." They won the prize. If you take three guys who are really smart guys and they work on it full time against hobbyists, they're going to win. And and so, but the the reason you do it is because you learn a lot and it, it brings community together, right? And um, so there there was another prize which was the Yahoo prize, which was uh, um, like the Netflix prize, but it was um, to do prediction of who would like what music and and based upon the database that Yahoo had. And um, one of the teams that was really, really competitive, they didn't win, but they, um, they were in Hong Kong, and they, they, just, they, they made it a class project. The semester project was the prize. And it was just a great, they, just a great learning opportunity for them, and they, they learned all the tools necessary to do it. So, you know, as a university, you know, Duke, um, if we wanted to do something like that, which I think would be a good thing, we, we should do it within the context of the educational mission. And if we win, it'd be just a bonus. But that's not the point, because we're not going to win. <laughs> that's the statistician talking. Uh, that's, that's the department chair talking. <laughs> All right, so thanks for your attention. Thank you, guys.